The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Everyone has their own morning routine. <sighs> um, so it's 6.31 in the morning, and... I just woke up, and now I'm going to get on the Peloton. And for me, it's Peloton. Because I try to get it done early in the morning, and I have this, like, little ritual where I, um, I light a candle while I'm on the bike. So that's what I'm doing now. So I have this, like, cool mood lighting while I'm doing my thing. For the uninitiated, the Peloton is a fancy exercise bike with a screen and a library of cycling classes. I have a steady practice and I have my favorite teachers. What's up, Peloton? How are you? I'm Allie Love. Happy you're here. We got a 30 minute 90s pop ride today. And by the end of each ride, <laughs> to take me home. I have gotten a great workout. <sighs> it's done. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 30th. Today, we're charting the rise and fall of Peloton. We take a look at the company's sudden success, its recent stumbles, and we unpack the cult of personality around Peloton instructors. Plus, at the end of the show, what happens when an astronaut and two cosmonauts come back to Earth? Just in the last few months, the Peloton company has been in for a really rough ride. The demand just isn't there. Their CEO was replaced, their stock took a nosedive, and they have laid off thousands of employees. Most recently, there have been rumors that Peloton might be acquired by a bigger company like Apple or Amazon, which was founded by Jeff Bezos, the owner of The Washington Post. In sum, it is all just a mess. So this is one of those kind of slow motion train wreck type stories. That's Aaron Gregg. He's a business reporter at The Post, and he has been covering Peloton. It's a company that has had kind of the same story really over the past year, that of being unable to meet lofty expectations. And then every incremental news update, whether it's economic forecasts being revised downward by a billion dollars, whether it's the founding CEO leaving, each one of these just kind of support the basic idea that they were never going to be able to maintain that glow. Aaron, why do you think the Peloton story matters? Like, why is this the exercise company that you have been reporting on? You can kind of track what's going on in the economy and in our society in so many ways by what Peloton is doing and how their product is selling. It's kind of a bellwether for so many different social and economic undercurrents. 
when you see people go back into lockdown, you see Peloton sales and the hype around Peloton uh, getting a boost. That was what happened in the early pandemic. They got more orders for bikes that they could ever sell. And so they just started making them, making them, making them. And then uh, it turned out that demand wasn't straight up. It was up and then leveled off. Over time, as people realized that they needed to go back into something resembling a more normal life, things kind of went south for Peloton. Today, Peloton announced major cutbacks and that its co-founder and CEO is stepping down. Co-founder John Foley out as CEO and Barry McCarthy, former Netflix and Spotify CFO, stepping in. They are suspending production of Bike for two months, Bike Plus until June, Tread for six weeks, Tread Plus for the rest of fiscal year 2022. Now, the reason it has everything to do with the fact that there's no demand. So if ever there was a tell on the idea that the stay-at-home trade could be over, I would have to say this could be it because this is really one of the stay-at-home uh, darling. They kind of lost that glow that they had early on in the pandemic. And so I think in many ways it, it kind of says a lot about this sort of seesaw that we've been on for the past couple of years. Peloton is a company that was really built around its CEO and founder, John Foley. He's kind of the quintessential hype man. He's a a marketing whiz who basically built a following around this company. They have an incredibly loyal fan base of people who really like the idea that you can get on a bike and it's not just you in a room by yourself. There's an instructor, maybe hundreds or thousands of miles away, who is hyping you on. There's uh, 20 or 30 other people who are riding the same route as you. You can, you know, adjust the screen and, and do routes in different places as if you're actually going somewhere else outside of your room. And so it's this sort of exercise version of social media, honestly. It was the first company to really take this idea of connected experiences where people all over the globe are being brought together through the internet and make it into an exercise experience. So that was really the genius of of what Peloton was. And obviously, it, it found its moment in the pandemic. Hmm. You could basically stay in your living room and be simultaneously exercising with dozens of people and having a great time without being exposed to any of them. And so people loved that. They bought these things. Anyone with the means to pay upwards of $1,000 for one of these things did so in, in the early pandemic. And it really became a staple of that time period, more so than almost any other consumer product. And how did that translate into profits and success for Peloton as a company. So they really found a boom town for them. It, it was a life-changing event for this company. It transformed them from kind of a, a bit player on the tech scene with a crazy idea that, you know, a lot of people were skeptical of into a household name. And I think that the story more recently has been, can they live up to that hype? What do you mean by that? Why are there questions now about whether Peloton is going to be able to write out all the success? So Peloton is, I think, the perfect example of a business that became a victim of its own success. The investment community and the business leaders themselves uh, basically had visions of this being one of the leading tech companies out there. Uh, It really looked like Peloton was going to be compared with Google or Apple. 
in, in certain ways. And I think what they fell victim to was just the basic market dynamics pressing down upon them. The first being that there's a finite number of people who are going to pay $1,000 to have this bike in their living room. And once those people pay it, they're not going to pay it again. More recently, what Peloton has been pushing is their connected treadmill. It's called Tread. And it's had some success, but it really hasn't boomed the way the bikes did because a lot of people who have already bought the bikes are not also going to buy a Peloton treadmill to put right next to it. And they've kind of saturated their market. What are some of the other reasons for why Peloton is in a more challenging moment right now? So another big one is the return to work. From a personal perspective, people are now going back to Orange Theory. They're going back to gyms. They're uh, going on runs with their friends just like they used to. And then what about supply and demand? Because there was a lot of demand for Peloton bikes a year ago, two years ago especially. And it feels like that's less the case now and presenting some problems for this company that has been manufacturing lots of bikes, very expensive bikes to to send to people. So one way to look at it is that the, the huge surge in buying activity for Pelotons that we saw in the early pandemic was never really a creation of new demand. It was more just pushing forward demand. These are people who might have bought a Peloton in the future, but they suddenly saw a reason to do it now. And so it's been very hard for Peloton to get a handle on what is real demand, what is kind of future demand being realized early, and what's going to happen in a month or a year. It's been really, really hard to predict how many people are going to buy a Peloton in any given month. And that's a big part of why they've had troubles. So talk to me about some of the ways that these challenges for Peloton have played out for their bottom line and their actual business. So the founding CEO, John Foley, was actually forced out. He left the company and uh, was replaced with Barry McCarthy, who is a longtime Netflix executive. Hmm. Barry McCarthy's bread and butter is building a subscriptions business. So what his appointment tells you is that they are realizing that their future is around people paying month to month for new products and for new content, basically. And so that's kind of his mission is to is to find a way to build a long-term business around that. I think we've also, we've just seen the company kind of come down from, from its high expectations. Its stock is down 72% in the past year. Uh, its CFO admitted in the last earnings call that it had fallen short of expectations from a sales perspective. They laid off about 2,800 people. Uh, this is a massive downsizing. This, these are people that were hired with a, a certain vision in mind for what they thought the company could be and what it could become. And it just didn't happen. So how did all of this happen? Like, how did Peloton find itself at the top of its game and then end up at this moment of having very real existential questions about whether this company is going to continue to be successful or to even be profitable? So starting about a year ago, you saw a really big trail off in sales. Uh, the first signs that there were big problems were when it started basically tempering its forecasts. It puts out these forecasts for how it will think it thinks it will do uh, over the coming year. And investors noticed that Peloton was like trimming, you know, more than a billion dollars off of its estimates, hmm. which for any business, that's signs of serious, serious problems. And that 
a company that has been very, you know, very good about hyping itself and putting optimistic projections out into the universe. To see them walking back like that, that that was a big shock to the stock market. I remember when that when that report came out, I, I think the stock dropped by twenty five percent. It was like wow. in a single day. I mean, this it was just a shockwave. Over time, it's just been steady, steady, you know, release of news is that basically confirms that basic point that they've kind of saturated the number of people who are going to buy these bikes. And it's hard to get those people to, again, pay $1,000 for a new product. They're now sort of coming to grips with the, the tough realities of a subscriptions-oriented business, which it's very hard to get a lot of people to keep paying for a service over a long period of time. How is Peloton different from other exercise bikes? And who were they marketing to? Well, that's the problem. It's really not. I think that people are realizing that it's pretty easy to take a stationary bike, put an iPad on it, and get a bunch of subscribers to exercise in a virtual format. Mm -hmm. Nordic Track is doing almost exactly the same thing. Apple has a whole suite of connected fitness products. And so I think Peloton is now at the point where, sure, they were first out of the gate. They really created this craze. Power to them for doing that. But now they are facing harsh reality and they have a lot of competitors. And there are real concerns from the investor community about whether their product is unique enough to build a moat around its business. Though the thing that I would point out here is that the thing Peloton has that other companies don't have is the loyalty and the culture around some of these instructors who are essentially celebrities and that they've really invested in these figures that people really feel like they have a relationship with. That's right. It, it really does say a lot about the power that brands can have and that online communities have when they're linked to a specific company or a specific product. I think Peloton has done a better job than really almost any company that you can think of over the past two years of creating hype, creating a following. You have people who are very loyal to this company at a time when big business is met with a lot of skepticism. And they have turned that into a very devoted following. Anytime you see news out of this company uh, that suggests they might be having problems, you have a massive community online and elsewhere who are upset, who are worried, who really want this company to succeed. So I think over the long term, that loyal following is, is going to be Peloton's best bet at creating a really sustainable and flourishing business. Aaron Gregg is a business reporter for The Post. After the break, we speak with culture writer Anne Helen Peterson about the cult of personality around the Peloton and the power of its branding. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. 
So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. So I'm going to start by asking you, who are you and what do you do? My name is Anne Helen Peterson, and I am an author of several books, but also write the newsletter Culture Study, and I own a Peloton. <laughs> I, that was going to be my first question. <laughs> I want to know, like, who are your favorite instructors? What is your whole Peloton regime? So I am firmly team power zone which people either are like really into or they're like what the heck is this <laughs> Anne has written a lot about peloton and i wanted to talk to her to unpack what this craze says about our culture during the pandemic our relationships to ourselves and to others because there are a lot of us who are obsessed with what is essentially an at-home spin class The big difference between Peloton and Spin is the screen. And the fact that the screen is big enough and the programming is varied enough and um, gamified in a way that it's really engaging. The technology is such that you can really push yourself and get a significant workout. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the screen, that to me feels like the big thing of you have this instructor who's staring into the screen, essentially into your eyes. And it's amazing how much you feel like, oh, as I'm riding this bike, I'm with this person. I am having like an actual relationship with them in this very intense moment at the peak of my exercise. And that there's something about that screen that really, I think, mimics a, a real life relationship. Yeah, I think the size of the screen is so important. You know, it's not the size of an iPad. It's actually the size of like a big laptop or like, a mm -hmm. you know, a, a desktop computer. And so that combined with the way that they actually shoot the instructor, it gives you that sort of intimacy mm -hmm. that you really feel like you are spending significant time with this instructor. And especially for a favorite instructor or, you know, if you take rides that are longer, like Matt Wilpers is the lead um, Power Zone instructor. And every week I spend like at least two hours with him, right? Like mm -hmm. in intimate, <laughs> intimate mm -hmm. one-way conversation. And it creates a sort of bond that, you know, lots and lots of people have had similar sorts of bonds with actual fitness instructors, you know, whether it's their yoga instructor or like a trainer or a boot camp person, like... These are interesting relationships. What's fascinating about Peloton is that they've been able to create those sorts of relationships with a screen mm -hmm. and at scale. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit more about Peloton's trajectory, because I think obviously this was a thing that a lot of people were excited about even before the pandemic. But then the pandemic hit and it was like Peloton was the it brand of this era of society. I mean, that, that was when I got my Peloton. And frankly, I went through relatively extraordinary lengths to buy a used Peloton that was probably more expensive than a new Peloton just because I like had to have this thing because it was the only <laughs> way that I was going to feel connected with the outside world while doing some form of exercise. Um, so I'm hoping you can kind of go back and explain a little bit of how Peloton became such a big part of the beginning of the pandemic. There were so many things at the beginning of the pandemic that people had been doing every day for their adult lives that they were no longer able to do. 
And exercising was one of them. And I think that depending on where you were, especially during those first early months, there just wasn't a lot of other opportunities to move your body. Like if you were living in an urban area in a smaller space, you couldn't get weights anywhere, right? Like Mm -hmm. there was no way to buy weights if you didn't already have weights. And also going outside, you couldn't run without a mask on. Like people would yell at you. And the Peloton became a way to obtain that sort of exercise and the endorphins that come with exercise too because it's not just about oh I want to lose weight or whatever like that like it's about having that sort of connection with your body in some way especially when you're stuck inside one room all day where at least for me it felt like you would get on the bike and then you were sort of transported to a slightly different dimension (laughs) just because you were sweating so much and your like brain wasn't thinking about anything else other than like how much it hurts to do this thing but it felt like like an, an, an actual escape. Yeah, Peloton was very savvy in those early months when all of the instructors did their classes from their quote-unquote homes. It was clearly like an apartment that was doubling as their homes, but they did them remotely. And then after that, they went back in the studio with a lot of precautions and, and never talked about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. No one said the words COVID. But it was, it was an escape. So I want to fast forward a little bit to now and the challenges for the business model and layoffs that have happened in the company. And more personally, you know, I've heard of friends of mine who are saying, how much could I get for this bike if I just sold it now? Um, And the waits to get new bikes are much shorter than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm wondering what you think is happening here. Why you think that the excitement that people had about this kind of experience and these, you know, relationships with these instructors, why, why that's starting to shift? I mean, I think that there is only so large a demographic <laughs> that wants to spend not only thousands of dollars for a bike, but then also the, you know, I think it's like between 40 and $50 a month. Sustaining for me. <laughs> right? Comes out of my bank so, account every month. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a commitment in that capacity. And oftentimes people will be like, oh, it's no more than a gym. And that's really true. But there is only a certain percentage of the population who wants to spend that much for a gym. Right. Mm -hmm. So at some point you reach market saturation. They basically exhausted the amount of people in the country who are interested (laughs) in this bike and that the people who got it have already gotten it. And yeah, I think for at least a lot of them. And I think that they are trying to continue to broaden their appeal. have done a lot with like marketing to people who are older. But at the same time, sometimes markets are finite. And I think that is something that we are so bad at talking about Hmm. in the U.S. and within capitalism just generally, Hmm. because all that we think about is like, how can, you know, a business is only successful if it grows exponentially forever. But that's not possible, (laughs) right? Like at some point you run out of people. Yeah. And they have been trying to expand globally and there are different limitations on that for different reasons, but like... I I find myself frustrated with the discourse around Peloton that's like, people hate their Pelotons now. And I'm like, I actually don't think so. I think some people do like going to the gym again and some people no longer psychologically have the same need for the Peloton. But as a business, like just because it's not growing at the same clip does not mean 
that it is a failure. And I think that stock market valuation is very different than like whether or not people are using these bikes. I think that's a really good point. But I do feel like people's relationship with the bike and with their favorite instructors on this bike are starting to evolve. I feel like, at least for me personally, as much as at the beginning stages of the pandemic that this bike and the screen and the super, like, hot fit instructor staring at me through the screen felt like a real relationship, I think that I'm starting to realize that, like, the relationships I have with people through screens are not real relationships or are not relationships that are as fulfilling as relationships with people that happen in person. And that there is still something that is lost from being physically in places with people. And I think I'm starting to like see through the mirage a little bit more. Do you feel like that's that's part of it? I mean, I think that's true for sure. And I, so many people I know over the course of the last two years have gone through a really interesting evaluation of of what relationships are, what relationships matter, how to cultivate relationships, realizing they don't have a community or or a safety net, wanting to cultivate more of that community and safety net. And that's clearly not necessarily happening with an instructor on the bike. I do have a secondary question, though, and that's who's your favorite instructor, because I think this is interesting. Yeah, that has also changed a little bit, too. I used to be very big into Allie Love. She's Trinidadian American, so I feel like a particular loyalty to her. But I feel like I've been veering more towards Tunde has great arm workouts, and I aspire to have her arm, so, like, she has to stay in the mix all the time. No one will murder you on your arms like like Tunde will. She's just like, <laughs> again, again. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's interesting, too, that— Allie was your favorite instructor because Allie, I think, more than a lot of the other instructors, really does cultivate this emotional connection. Mm -hmm. Her most popular series was this series called Sundays with Love, which was like a thinly veiled religious experience, right? Yeah, it feels like you're in church. I want to thank you all for your sweat, for your trust, but most importantly, your willingness to be present, to understand the moment Yeah, and I think that it makes sense that maybe people are looking for meaning Mm -hmm. in places outside of their Peloton instructor. Mm -hmm. But but I'm wondering, like, what do you see as the future of this company and this brand, but also, like, how, how we as a society think about exercise and the exercise that we want? One thing I've been thinking about recently as rumors of an acquisition by Amazon or Apple came to light was that, like, that makes sense, but also highlights the ways in which it's just another way that a tech company can infiltrate all corners of your life and get all of this information about you, right? So if Amazon also knows exactly when I exercise, what else is it going to try to sell me? It makes me feel gross, right? (laughs) Because, like, exercise feels very private, Mm -hmm. Exercise for me becomes a space when I'm not quantifying myself. You know, I turn off the calories, I turn off the mileage and that sort of thing. I am just trying to be really present and listen to my body during that time. And connecting it to other devices, like to other platforms, whether it's Amazon or Apple or my phone, feels smothering. Um, But in terms of the future... 
that it's going to be something that people continue to do. Like people are going to love it. They're going to stop using it for a while. They're going to come back to it. Really, it reminds me of the conversation about the future of being in the office in that it's not one thing or the other, right? It's not that everyone is going to be working from home forever or that everyone's going to go straight back into the office. Like We've changed. The future is going to be hybrid in some form. And that also seems to be what the future of people's relationships with Peloton and with Zoom and and so many other technologies that became so ubiquitous during the pandemic is going to be. Anne Helen Peterson is a culture writer and author of the newsletter Culture Study. The story was produced by Lexi Diao. Before we go, one more quick thing. We should uh, see the horizon uh, momentarily. There's one of the Russian Mi-8 helicopters as we stand by for touchdown. On Wednesday, two Russian cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut landed in a remote area of Kazakhstan after undocking from the International Space Station and flying back to Earth. Touchdown. Touchdown confirmed at 6.28 a.m. Central Time, 7.28 a.m. Eastern Time, 5.28 p.m. at the landing site. Mark Vandehei and Pyotr Dubrov back home one year after leaving the planet. Mark Vandehei has spent exactly 355 days in space, the longest ever single spaceflight for an American. He spent much of that time with Russian cosmonauts Pyotr Dubrov and Anton Shkaplerov, who said this while he was warming up outside after the landing. And the tea here is much tastier. Uh, Once you're on your homeland, that makes everything feel better. Americans and Russians have been living and working together on the space station for a long time. But that relationship has gotten complicated because of the war in Ukraine. The International Space Station is a partnership between several countries' space agencies, including the U.S. and Russia. And those two agencies need each other. The Russians provide the propulsion that allows the ISS to keep its orbit. NASA provides power to the Russian side of the station. But in the last month, Russian officials have threatened to walk away from this partnership to stop supplying engines that help get cargo and supplies to the space station and to even let the station crash to Earth. That's the head of Russia's space agency. He's basically saying, for all I care, Americans can ride whatever they want to and from the space station, including broomsticks. But what Russian space officials are saying on the ground is just so different from what people are saying at the space station, a place that has always represented collaboration and unity and what's possible when people from very different backgrounds work together. On Tuesday, before departing the space station, the Russian cosmonaut Shkaplerov officially handed over control of the station to his American counterpart. And he talked about what this moment symbolizes to him. People uh, have problem on Earth, on orbit. Uh, we are like, uh, we, yeah, not like, we are one crew. 
and I think uh, ISS is like symbol of the friendship and cooperations and uh, and like symbol of future of exploration of space. And thank you very much, my crewmates. We are like my space brothers and space sisters. If you want to learn more about how the International Space Station could be tanked by geopolitics on Earth, definitely check out coverage of the astronauts' return from our space reporter, Chris Davenport. We'll have a link to that in today's show notes and at postreports.com. The story was produced by Renny Spranovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Renny Spranovsky. It was edited by Ariel Plotnik and Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.